It's the tail end of the psychedelic 60s, and paranoia is running the day. If it isn't Charlie Manson, it's the LAPD or the FBI or the mysterious body of something called the Golden Fang. So what's all this now? Everything's gone from groovy to where you at, man, suggesting a high level of fear or discomfort with the way things are headed. <coughs> this is Doc Sportello. He's a private investigator. Whoa. Are you all right? Am I? Are you? And like a peculiar planet in today's horoscope, in through the door walks Doc's ex-old lady Shasta and those five little words. I need your help, Doc. Hey, you're back on Sound on Sight, and we're here to talk about uh, Ricky's number five film of the year. It's called Inherent Vice, and by we... I mean that we're joined by two special guests. First up is occasional co-host and future author of your film texts, and that's Kate Redebaum. Yes, future author of all important works and thoughts. Hello, everybody. Fantastic. And we're also joined by the author of Showgirls, It Doesn't Suck, as well as a contributing editor at Cinemascope and writer for Reverse Shot, among other things that I'm probably forgetting, Mr. Adam Naiman. Hi, thanks for having me very much. First, it's your first time on the podcast. You're here. It is. You're you're here for the bitter end. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay, uh, so uh, this is the new film from Paul Thomas Anderson. It really doesn't need too much introduction, and because of that, I'm not even going to try to attempt much of a plot synopsis, which I think is kind of a lost cause anyway. Uh, but I can say that it stars uh, Joaquin Phoenix as Doc Doc Sportello, a private investigator working out of Los Angeles, the fictional town of Gordita Beach, Los Angeles, in 1970. And uh, things start to get exceedingly strange for him, more so than usual, when an ex, uh, played by Catherine Waterston, her name is Shasta Faye Hepworth, shows up and gives him a job, uh, or at least a set of problems. And things just sort of spiral out from there, with a whole lot of other characters and actors I'm sure we'll we'll get to discussing. Now, there's something I need to straighten out, uh, first of all. I saw this film sober, but only once. <laughs> Apparently, uh, both Ricky and Kate have seen the film twice, but once while trashed. I don't know how that happened. Uh, how many times have you seen this film, and were were you in any sort of altered state of consciousness when when those things happened? Uh, I've seen the film three times. Oh my god! Ooh. I've seen it uh, in a totally uh, in a totally sober frame of consciousness each time. Um, I think that there was a piece that got published on Vanity Fair or something recently that Anderson seems to be suggesting or, or maybe demanding that people watch the film twice, which is an excellent box office strategy. You know, if you you know, please please buy a please buy a second ticket. But I do think, as much of a cliche as it is to to say this, it, it is a film that benefits from revisitation and 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 from rewatching. I think people say that about a lot of different movies. I think sometimes it's true about those movies. I think it's definitely true in this case. Simon, just to be clear, I wasn't trashed. I had a bottle <laughs> no, of I was, wine. I was just being an asshole. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And I, did I got, I got more and more drunk as the movie went along. I mean, I don't think That's it's... That's usually how alcohol works. Well, but it wasn't like we stumbled in drunk. We stumbled in we with stumbled wine out drunk. to drink and then stumbled out drunk. Exactly. <laughs> but this movie requires, like, it wants you to come in in a very open and relaxed frame of mind. I mean... 
alcohol is the legal way to do that in wherever I was when I saw it, New York, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Uh, Well, Ricky, this is your number five film of the year. I I am, I mean, I saw it on Friday, so I'm counting it as a 2015 film. And I also don't want to think about listing it yet because I hate lists, as I'm sure I've said already. Um, Do you think uh, this is a film that requires a repeat viewing? Sure. You say you hate lists on the very episode in which we're listing down our <laughs> That's how I roll, man. Uh, no, I agree with you. I think it's kind of like ridiculous to kind of compare inherent bias to say, I don't know, Selma or The Immigrant. It's kind of, I don't know, just there's no need to, but whatever. People like lists. We're doing our lists. But uh, no, I really, really, really do love this movie, clearly, because it's on my top 10 of the year. I kind of like feel like I liked it a lot more in second viewing. I was a little concerned watching it for a second time because I thought I would, you know, it's a really long movie. It's two and a half hours long. And I thought I would find myself somewhat bored or restless. But I actually liked it a lot more in the second viewing. It's basically the big sleep play. It has the big Lebowski mixed with a little Cheech and Chong, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, uh, Robert Altman's Long Goodbye, et cetera, et cetera. What's interesting about this film is it seems to be a detective story. And I guess you can label it a detective story, but... I think if you actually think about it and look a little closer, it's really Paul Thomas Anderson's idea of a comedy. Like, this is his slapstick comedy. And, like, I think, like, you know, he made Punch Drunk Love, which I guess is kind of like his version of, like, a romantic comedy, which took inspiration from screwball comedies from the past, et cetera, et cetera. But I I feel like this movie, like, I actually did feel that sense of longing that the main character had to his ex-girlfriend. And when I talk about the main character, I'm, of course, talking about uh, Doc Sportello, played by Joaquin Phoenix. Um, and it, you see it right away in the opening scene. It opens up with this beautiful sequence in which they basically just have this really chill discussion. She explains to him what's going on in her life, why she needs his help. And then there's this beautiful, beautiful moment in the film. Like This is like the second scene in which he says goodbye to her and she drives away in the car. And it's like he doesn't want to let her go. And you actually get this close-up of his hand. And he puts his hand on the car as the car drives away. Like He has this longing for her still. He still like loves her. He still cares about her. And he doesn't want to let her go, but he knows he has to. And right away, as soon as I saw that shot, especially with that opening musical cue, that opening song, which was fantastic... I just right away fell in love with this movie. And then you get the title card drop in, which is beautiful in itself. I, I don't want to be like a fanboy, you know what I mean? Like where I walk into a Paul Thomas Anderson film and because I'm such a huge fan of the director, I mean, we got to remember that we started a podcast like seven and a half years ago and it started with us raving about There Will Be Blood. Like it was a big love fest for Paul Thomas Anderson. We dedicated three, if not four shows on a director. This happens to be our very last podcast. We're ending the show today. And here we are talking about Inherent Vice. But I actually went into the movie thinking I was going to hate it. So I didn't walk into the movie just automatically willing to give it a pass because it's Paul Thomas Anderson and, you know, being okay with whatever flaws the movie has. And you you didn't want to really talk about the plot. And yeah, the plot is confusing. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. But I think that's kind of like the point because I feel like the main character he himself is lost. So it's okay if we, the viewers, are lost trying to, trying to figure it all out because he can't even figure it out himself. I mean, he's a stoner, and he's not just lost because he's a stoner. He just feels lost wholly. Like, I don't know, there's something wrong with this guy spiritually. Right. Is he, is so, he, is he lost because he's a stoner, or is he a stoner because he's lost? <laughs> yes, Simon. And, and, other, uh, and other eternal questions. Yeah, so I don't know. I really love this movie, guys. I love it. I, I mean... There's so many things I want to say, but I've already talked for five minutes. So let someone <laughs> let's let's let someone else cut in. Well, I, I would say when when we talk about um, inherent vice being indebted to things like Cheech and Chong, 
I, the, my my first gut reaction thought, and I feel like a dick now because I'm the only person who's seen this movie only one time, um, <laughs> si- in, since the Friday that it came out, like three days ago, um, here in Ottawa. Uh, you know, a lot of stoner. I would say the vast majority of stoner films are films that feature stoner characters, uh, specifically uh, around pot. I mean, I'm not talking about like Requiem for a Dream. Um, they tend to. Uh, emphasize a couple of aspects about being stoned, like you get the munchies, or you giggle a lot, or etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And what I really love about Inherent Vice, one of the things I love about Inherent Vice, is that it it really it captures all the dimensions of being stoned and what it would. I I I don't do that very often. I don't usually enjoy it, um, but I think this was a reasonably good simulation of what it would be like to be stoned all the time and sort of trying to live your life that way. So, you know, parts of it are sort of giggly and funny and ridiculous, but other parts are really unsettling and paranoid and feature associations that you wouldn't be making unless you were stoned. And, you know, we have this character needlessly complicating the situation and, or uh, coming into situations and, uh, and, you know, sort of, leaping to to new associations that that just don't feel natural at all and but, that's but and that's what the whole film feels like but but the thing is we keep on mentioning stoner and the thing is yeah his character does smoke a lot of dope but he's an american loner and he's a dreamer and if you look at all of his paul thomas anderson films they all feature a similar character that's true well and and also pinchin as well right i mean like that's sorry to cut in in my turn in no, line but i'm gonna go for it um I mean, the thing that I love about the film, and I've seen it twice now as well, and it actually, again, like you were saying, Ricky, it it really goes by very quickly the second time. For people who are thinking it will feel like a slog the second time, it really doesn't. It goes by much um, more smoothly almost the second time, I would say. It feels like a film with maybe five acts or something to it, and they go by very quickly. But anyway, um, seeing it the second time around... There are so many films that you can reference in relation to this film. And the other kind of lineage I would say that this film is working in outside of the kind of stoner lineage of films is also um, films about the history of L.A. Like there's an amazing sequence in it where you basically get a reference to like Charles Burnett films and the films of the L.A. Rebellion and like African-American filmmakers. You get a reference to Chinatown. You get a reference to The Exiles, like all in the space of kind of two minutes of the film. I mean, this movie is amazing. It's doing so many things that are fabulous. But the film that I think maybe stuck out for me as a really interesting comparison watching it the second time is um, Jacques Demy's Umbrellas of Cherbourg, which is going to sound like a weird comparison. But it's because this film, um, the way in which kind of, I think, feeling is working in it is very similar to that film in the sense that the characters here seem almost like people who are kind of wandering in and out of I don't know, a world and a space and a time and feelings that are sort of outside of them. Like, this movie is not about how Joaquin Phoenix feels about the world. Like, yes, we get moments where he's sad and he's emotional and he's longing for the girlfriend, but the film just really feels, like, suffused with kind of general feelings about the end of the 1960s in America, the end of the kind of belief and the promise of uh, the left wing, the end of so many things happening in this moment, and you get these kind of swings back and forth between like joy and giddiness and then paranoia and then a kind of sense of closing in and the characters just seem to be lost in it it isn't the fact that like Joaquin Phoenix feels a certain way and the film is expressing that and I think that's part of the reason why people have been a bit frustrated by the film like they I've seen reviews where people are sort of saying well we don't really like what's Joaquin Phoenix's motivation or Doc Sportello's motivation I'm like that's not what the film is concerned with like it's about a space and a time and Oh, it's so good. Okay, that's all I'm going to say for now. I'll come all back right. to it. Adam, as the uh, as the big as the big Kahuna here, has seen it three times. 
uh, I mean, what films and references did, did you see sort of popping out at you, especially on that third viewing? Well, I mean, I think that uh, taken together, uh, each of your experiences of the movie sort of connects to some aspect of what I saw in it or, or, or what I liked about it. I, I just finished writing a long essay for the American magazine Cineast, which has an interesting publishing schedule. I mean, my piece will probably be out, you know, right, you know, in like May of 2015, at which point Inherent Vice will probably have, have, have faded from the consciousness a little bit. But I think that some of the stuff Kate said about it being an L.A. movie, I love the Chinatown reference in the movie where she says to him, do you like the lighting? Jimmy Wong Howe did it for us so many years ago, <laughs> which is a reference to the the guy who shot Chinatown as well as a number of other sort of key American films. I mean, I think that that's Anderson's cinephilia, um, which is quite strong. And I think he's moved now from imitating individual directors the way he used to imitate Scorsese say in some of the camera movements of Boogie Nights or Altman in the soundtrack use of Punch Truck Love I think it's now a more general catch-all cinephilia I agree with Kate it seems geared to the idea of LA movies or maybe the idea of, of, of detective movies instead of deliberate individuated references to specific films but I also think that the idea of Doc as someone who's stoned is very interesting for Anderson because his last three films which I think have the closest relationships within his filmography. They're also chronologically ordered. Uh, there will be Blood, um, Master, and Inherent Vice. The two things that they have in common are, one, they're all about addicts. Um, Daniel Plainview in There Will Be Blood is addicted to, I mean, you can say he's addicted to capitalism, he's addicted to a kind of success. By the end of the film, he is deeply addicted to alcohol, and his alcoholism extends into the posture and the mannerisms that Joaquin Phoenix has in The Master. He walks and carries himself at the beginning of that film, exactly the way Daniel Day-Lewis does at the end of the last one. And The Master has sort of the key line, I think, for understanding these last three Anderson films, where Amy Adams says to Joaquin Phoenix, you can't take this life straight, can you? Um, and you have that with Doc and Inherent Vice as well. These are all people who are drinking, or in Doc's case, smoking up and getting high as a kind of a, a coping mechanism. And in each film, it's different. The source of what they're coping with is either external or internal, or it starts as external and becomes internal. And in Doc's case, I think what you've all said is true, which is that to some extent, it's the decade and the culture and the fact that those things are slipping away, just like his girlfriend is slipping away that are really weighing on him. But the other thing I think about these three films, maybe this could be a springboard for some uh, some discussion, but I think it's very acute, is the structuring absence in each of these last three films are is war. I mm. mean, in there, in there Will Be Blood, the period that the movie passes over is very particularly the period of World War One, And it's not a coincidence that when we see Daniel again after this long break, he's just totally ruined firing a gun off in his house. I mean, World War uh, Master is all about the trauma of people coming back from World War II. The film is very closely based on John Huston's documentary, Let There Be Light, uh, about returning war veterans. If you guys have never seen that film, you should, and then rewatch The Master because it's like The Master is like a fictional extrapolation of how the men and the real soldiers in the John Huston film got that way, and it shot exactly the same way. And, and then in this film, Pynchon has said or, or implied that you know his novel is very much about Vietnam, or it's about an America that as that is 
uh, coping with the fact that Vietnam is going on. So not just the Manson trial, not just the summer of love, not just the end of the 60s, but a foreign war and a foreign war that's figured in the story of Inherent Vice in the form of the Golden Fang, in the form of a very Asian-identified, Oriental-identified cartel, which at the beginning of the story seems to exist far away, and by the end of the story you see is really running things and, and influencing things and manipulating things kind of on the home front as well. And so I think that there's a tremendous unity between these last three Los Angeles films. I think there's a tremendous unity in terms of them being about California, Californian society, Californian economy, Californian culture, and I see them all in a way as war films, even if none of them are, are combat films. Um, and I think that, you know, Anderson is not a subtle, I shouldn't say not subtle, you know, Anderson is not a shy and retiring and humble guy. He has gigantic aspirations for his movies. He makes movies with visual grandeur and thematic grandeur. And rather than look at this as a kind of like a wacky stoner comedy where it's hard to follow the plot, I sort of want to look at what are the big currents that are at play here. Because I think Anderson's filmmaking has gotten to the point where it demands that sort of attention and rigor and interpretation. Mm-hmm. You know, you know what's interesting is I have here in my notes time and setting because I really specifically want to point out the fact that it is a movie about Los Angeles because he did grow up in Los Angeles around that. I mean, this is a fictional part of Los Angeles, but, you know, it's very similar to the surroundings of him growing up as a kid. And uh, it just feels like this actual setting, like there's such a strong sense of period and setting that it actually becomes a character within itself, like within the film. And also, like, it, it's funny, I agree with everything you're saying, but I just don't see the connection between the main character here and the main character in The Master and There Will Be Blood. Like, I do think that his last three films have all focused on a different period of American history following a war. Yes, I have that in my notes. And it specifically, um, you know, zooms in on this small community, usually in, like, California. But I kind of feel like he's the one character in this film that is kind of, like, okay with who he is. Like, yeah, he's a stoner and he's a detective, but he kind of... He doesn't. Really, he, I don't know. Like I feel like everyone that surrounds him is lost and frustrated but, and hurting. But, he, but but what he is is he's a guy who is enthralled to and helpless to uh, a woman, both mm-hmm. an actual woman and the idea of one. There will be blood. Got a lot of criticism for the fact that there were no women in it, and besides the fact that I find that very interesting because all of the aggression is kind of very masculine and there's a kind of weird homoeroticism to some of it. I mean. Yeah. In, will be blood, I think that there is no authority for women because of the period that it's set in. In The Mm -hmm. Master, I think the authority that women have is very sneaky because Amy Adams clearly seems to be the one in charge of that cult. It's just that Philip Seymour Hoffman is the front person for it and everything that the Joaquin Phoenix character is obsessed by in that movie, it's, it's women. There's the incest with his aunt. There's the girl he left behind. There's the fact that he seems to want to have sex with every girl that he meets. There's the sculpture of the woman on the beach. Like The whole movie is about him kind of and his sexuality and wanting to get laid. And that happens in this movie too. That what's slipping away is the culture, but it's but it's it's personified and embodied in the form of this girl. And when she comes back and has that second scene with him, which is not staged the way it is in the book at all, that is not what happens in the book. Are you, are you referring to the sex scene? The sex scene. It, it, right. it happens, but it is not staged that way or described that way. It's not only very close visually to scenes in the master of um, him kind of clinging to naked women, including the sculpture, the sand sculpture of the naked woman. It's, it's framed and staged very similarly. I mean, 
you know, that, 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 that scene is she's filling in all the stuff that he is fantasizing about and imagining about and fearing that he's lost, kind of making him whole again, able to sort of allow him to, to function. I mean, the idea of her is kind of what he's addicted to, the same way that he's addicted to pot, the same way that Freddie is an alcoholic and the master. So I think that there's very, very close unity between these three characters, what it is that they're lost, the kind of hurt it is that they're nursing. And I think a lot of it is male-female dynamic, even though in There Will Be Blood, as I said, there's no significant women at all. Sorry, can I just quickly ask you a question about that uh, sex scene? By the way, I think the sex and confession scene is like the best scene in the movie, and probably one of the best scenes I've seen in any movie in 2014. But refresh my memory, at the end of that scene, who is it that says they will not get back together as a couple? Is it her or him? It's, it's her. her. It's her, right? Okay. I know, because I kind of feel like I, I, I understand that. Like, that's what I said at the beginning of the review, where he's longing for her. Like, he still loves her. He still wants to be with her. But I think I kind of feel like he accepts the fact that he can't be with her at the same and time. Keep in, and keep in mind that by making Joanna Newsom, Sortilege, into the narrator of the film, Anderson is creating a possibility that both women in this film are entirely imaginary. Right. I actually, I, I needed to bring up, that was going to be my next point, as long as we're talking about women in this film, yeah. we need to talk about Sortilege, uh, who... Uh, does, even just the casting of Joanna Newsom is such a uh, is such an ostentatious thing to do, and I'm not sure what it means. And I'd be curious to get some readings on that. Well, but the thing is, we actually do see her in some scenes, but for the majority of the film, we only hear her voice. We hear her voice at the she, opening of the film. But I kind of feel she doesn't interact with a single other person. In the exactly, film. exactly. She's in the scene, but she doesn't interact with anybody. So we don't even know if she is there. Is she in his head? That's what I love about the voiceover. Like, I'm not a big fan of voiceover in film. Like, a lot of times I feel like voiceover is just there to, like, you know, hold our hand and guide us along. But I kind of love the voiceover in this film because it connects with the very last shot of this film in which Joaquin Phoenix turns to the camera, he breaks the fourth wall, and he winks at us, like the audience. And it, it makes me rethink the whole film because I don't know what is real or what's not. I don't know if she's a character, if she's in his head, is she someone from his past? We don't know because when we do see her, she doesn't interact with anybody. Well, and also, I mean, I think the other thing that's important to think about with the Sertilege character is that I think... Anderson was very, very smart in terms of expanding her role and giving her the position of the narrator in the sense of balancing out the questions of, of what Adam was pointing towards with this idea of the male-female dynamic. Because I think without the Sortilege character, even with the, the Jenna Malone character who is very interesting and I think is the film treats her very interestingly, um, without the Joanna Newsom character, I think the film would run the risk of, um, I'm not sure, of... of us no longer being able to distinguish the fact that the way in which the women are presented in the film is meant very much to be not only referencing a particular kind of male view of them that might be attributed to the character of uh, Dr. Portello, but is also referencing a history of cinema, right? I mean, films like Animal House and this idea of the kind of like titty comedy is like immediately in your face, like right away from the first uh, Pussy Eater special scene right at the beginning of the film. Um, but this sort of ledge character, I think the fact that she is given a position of kind of a potentially overview of the film, as much as I think Pinchon or Pinchon allows for anyone to have a sense of overview, she is given that, and, in, and it's done in a really interesting way in the sense of any kind of authority or authorial overview is done through the realm of um, astrology, right? This idea of this very, like, purposefully kind of goofy, the way that we would react to it is we would think it's a very goofy choice for the one person who's meant to have whose view really kind of even undercut, undercuts that of Doc. I mean, Doc doesn't ever have a kind of like overarching view about anything. He doesn't even seem to be concerned with 
with being tr- with trying to get a sense of kind of the way things are going. I mean, we don't have the sense of any any anxiety, any need to get an actual kind of like sense of the way the world is. And I think, Ricky, maybe that's what you were pointing to in the sense that he actually seems pretty okay with things. It, he doesn't seem to have this drive to figure everything out. But I, but I think, but I think he is emotionally invested, and it's interesting what Anderson, how he torques the film. He makes Doc very invested in reuniting this family unit, which is an Anderson theme yeah. since always, right? I mean, it's in the book. That happens in the book. The, the daughters and the dads, the missing fathers reunited with their wives. It's in the book. But that's I mean, right in Anderson's thematic wheelhouse. And mm-hmm. it's interesting that he really privileges that scene, the way that that scene is shot and cut at the end where, where Owen Wilson is sort of coming back to his, um, you know, coming back to his family. He, he treats that as a kind of climax. And that's where Doc's moral center is really located within the film, that he refuses payment like Philip Marlowe before him. I mean, he doesn't even take expenses, really. I don't think we see him make a sense in this movie. Um, you know, he refuses payment. He's interested in reuniting this family. He's interested in trying to give somebody else the thing that he suspects that he never had, a, that he never took the chance to have. And I'm not convinced at the end of this film, not only am I not convinced that they're together, I'm not convinced that she's there. I mean, not yeah. only does Sortilege not interact with anybody else, neither does Shasta. And when she appears both times, she appears in a kind of guise, she appears in the kind of costume, she appears in the kind of things that are descri- described as being the past for her. When she, shows up, when she shows up, she's dressed the way that he always remembered her looking. I think that that Neil Young song that he plays, Journey to the Past, um, I, I mean, I, I'm not sure if he's really interacting with a person at that point or if it's the idea of a memory the idea that they're actually going to be together at the end of the film that they're really become like these Nicholas Ray characters living by night driving in their car you know at the at the end of the movie I'm not sure the movie wants us to believe that especially since he blurred reality and and surreality or or or, or reality and dream life so successfully in the master where you, you know, really can't tell if you're inside or outside the main character's perceptions. I feel that about aspects of this film as well, for sure. There is one major difference between Inherent Vice and his previous films when it comes to the family unit, is that in his previous films, it's always about the father and son. And in this film, it's really about the daughter, or daughters. Yes. Although, although, although Magnolia is very much about the daughter. As well, and actually, uh, yeah, I mean, Magnolia is very much about her and her father. I agree with you that it is usually fathers and sons. I think it's most crucially about fathers, especially about mm. absent fathers, dead fathers, derelict fathers, fathers who abandon their children. That's a big theme in There Will Be Blood between a father yeah. and a son. Um, and, and it's interesting because the father, the father family thing here is a side plot, but he treats it as if, as if it's a big cumulative thing. He, he treats it as a kind of a climax, and that I think is an example of him managing to impose some of his interests and some of some of his feelings as a director without overwhelming the source novel or totally changing its meaning or certainly not changing its plot because he's quite faithful. Does uh, does anyone have any thoughts uh, on? And I'm asking because I actually don't know uh, on the casting of Joanna Newsom for that character. I mean, we for anyone who knows who she is, I mean, she's not thought of as he, an he actress said, he said that he he knew her before like i think he just knew her socially and he said in an interview i saw he was talking about how he sort of uh was hearing her voice like in his head when he was writing it and then that it kind of went from there or something right and she does have a very distinct voice i mean people have 
been saying that since she started think, uh, records. Think about Amy Mann as kind of the unofficial, not the Ricky Jay actually narrator, another film where he did use voiceover Magnolia, but Amy Mann is kind of the conscience of Magnolia. Her songs are, you know, talk about the inner lives of the characters and that, you know, uh, they actually end up all singing Wise Up together. Or think of Shelley Duvall in Punch Drunk Love. The idea of a kind of eccentric song, a very reedy, high-voiced, weird song—the the "She Needs Me" song—that sort of indicates what the um, you know what the main character is going through. So I think like using like weird, idiosyncratic female singing voices to kind of structure or spackle together his movies is pretty consistent. I know Joanna Newsom doesn't sing in this movie, but she brings a lot of those associations. She's kind of like a hybrid of Amy Mann and Shelley Duvall. If you put them in a blender, you'd get Joanna Newsom. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, as long as we're talking about other people in the cast, we need to talk about Josh Brolin because he's definitely the next one down on the rung from Joaquin Phoenix. And what I love about uh, his character, I mean, he's amazing in the movie and so funny. What I love about Bigfoot Bjornsson uh, as a character, I mean, besides all the things that we should obviously love about him, like his status as a renaissance detective, um, <laughs> which anyway, uh, is the fact that he very much uh, not only is worthy of, but really feels like he's the protagonist in a film where we don't really get to see. Uh, <laughs> like he's off whenever he's not on screen, he's off doing his own thing. That's very much uh, of the same caliber as everything that doc is going through. This just happens to not be that movie. Dude, his scene in which he picks up the phone and starts talking to doc and his wife walks in and just takes the phone away from him, starts screaming at doc. That is one of the funniest scenes in any P.T. Anderson film. And I think Josh Brolin is just amazing in this film. And I was listening to Paul Thomas Anderson on the Mark Maron podcast uh, last week. And he was just talking about Josh Brolin and how there really isn't any actors like Josh Brolin anymore in Hollywood, at least not American actors, who are just like manly. You know, like there's they're, they're men. They're men that can have like these mustaches and like these these like weird haircuts. And like I don't know, there's something about Josh Brolin. He looks like he came from like a John Wayne Western. Like you don't see actors like that anymore. Um, I could totally follow this character on a journey into a, like a different film. You know, like his character in it. So there's so many interesting characters in this film. Like, I mean, can we talk about some of the surprise cameos or is that spoilers? Uh, no, let's, we can spoil the fuck it, whatever the hell we want. It's the end of the year. <laughs> All right. It's our last podcast. Do whatever you want. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but did anyone, I, I want it before we move on, I did want to hear about uh, anyone's special thoughts on Bigfoot and or, and or highlights they might want to point out. Ooh, oh, okay. so many. The, uh, uh, what, okay, highlights. What should we say? I, I mean, my some of my favorite like i think possibly my favorite scene in the film is the extended um two shot where anderson just kind of slowly zooms in on owen wilson and joaquin phoenix at the party that happens about midway through the film i mean that scene is like face meltingly amazing not only have i seen it twice and i keep forgetting that it's only one shot at least i think it's only one shot it kind of messes with your brain but that it's only one shot and you realize like the level of kind of dialogue and performance and mood shift that's happening just in one sequence but it's about everything i mean that sequence is about the vietnam war it's about um I don't know. God, it's it's a ugh, how can I explain it? It's it's a the sequence where nothing seems to be happening in the film, and yet you feel an unbelievable sense of kind of dread. It's it's a classic example in this film of how what is actually mattering in the film is maybe not so easy to point to in the frame, but is it is there and it is mind blowing. And I, I, that maybe for me was one of my favorite scenes. That in the scene where the uh, sister of Glenn Charlotte comes to visit Joaquin Phoenix and they like have laughing gas in the office are my two favorites in the scene the the sister who is by the way played by porn star belladonna for some reason 
Yeah. Uh, which maybe like, is just there to, to solidify the LA cred. I'm not sure. There's so many great scenes in this film. And, you know, when you talk about that scene, Kate, I feel like this movie is like often staged in a haze of smoke or fog that it kind of feels like what you said, like what's happening in front of you, what we're seeing on frame, not much is happening, but we know there's a lot happening around the world and it's surrounding these characters. Like, big things are happening. There's, we get mention of like, you know, Charles Manson and like the yeah. blacklist and all of these things that are mentioned subtly throughout the whole entire film. But he's such a great visualist. And the thing about Paul Thomas Anderson, he's also known for his big long takes. And his most famous is of course the one in Boogie Nights, which is a which was inspired by Scorsese's Goodfellows. But in this film, there is a lot of long takes. Like the sex scene that I spoke about earlier on, mm. um, that is six minutes long, one shot. There is tons of one takes in this film. It's not like over the top. Like even even like the fact that this film is set in the 70s, it's not like say American Hustle, a movie which I didn't like, in which they do everything to remind the audience that it takes place in the 70s. So they'll show you a commercial in the background on the TV. They'll, they'll play whatever the, the top 40 hit was from like the 70s. They'll have like the, the costumes that you would see in like the Village People music videos. Like it's so in your face. And here it's not really in your face. Everything seems very subtle, but yet he, he captures that that time and place. So th that's the difference between, I think, a fantastic filmmaker like Paul Thomas Anderson and what's his face? That whoever whoever the piece of crap made American Hustle. <laughs> Actually, no, I love, I, I like David Russell. I just hated American well, Hustle. But I mean, Ander Anderson and Russell are, are absolutely contemporaries of each other. Yeah, they broke out the same year. They, they broke out the same year. They're part of that same group. I mean, depending on who you read, you would either call them the Sundance Kids. Um, um, Armin White called them the American Eccentrics, along with Sofia Coppola and, and Wes Anderson and, and a couple of others. And I think that they're kind of an instructive contrast because they're both considered actors-directors. They're both filmmakers who have a kind of wonderful mix for them of like – indie or art movie cred, but they work with giant movie stars. They've both had big problems with studios and with producers, but they've also eventually carved out enough success that they're more or less left alone. And yeah, they are filmmakers who make uh, big gestures. And, 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 and when David O. Russell made American Hustle, I agree with you, that feels to me not just like a movie that keeps reminding you that it's the 1970s, but keeps reminding you that it's aware of 70s cinema. In fact, what American Hustle feels like is it feels like Boogie Nights, which is not a compliment, because I think that Boogie Nights is one of Anderson's worst films, and that he has kind of moved on from the talent and the brio and the show-offiness of something like Boogie Nights into something that's much more adult, much more controlled, much more suggestive. And I think that what Kate was getting at about the camera work, or what, what all of you were getting at the camera work, is very revealing in that sense. He has long takes in this movie. He has phenomenal compositions in this movie, but the kineticism is gone. It's very focused. It's very rigorous. It's very concentrated. He creeps these close-ups up so incrementally that you almost can't tell you're looking at a, uh, that, that the camera's moving. And then he does something amazing with the sound design, which is the closer he gets to the people talking, the quieter the dialogue becomes, which is a great, talk about a great stoned trick or a great paranoid mm -hmm. trick. The idea that you actually feel like you're leaning closer to the screen to make out what these people are saying, even though you're getting closer to them, that's a way to get across the idea that these people feel like they're being listened to or that they don't want to be overheard or that they're speaking in very, very hushed tones. So I think that, you know, Anderson used to spend as much time as he could showing audiences that he has style, 
I think now he's much more secure in himself. Maybe he's more secure in his career. He's more secure in the fact that he finally has Final Cut, which he didn't used to have over his um, over his earlier films. And now that he has that security, he shows off less. I would say he shows off less in this movie, actually, than any of his other movies yeah. that I can think of. It's his most self-effacingly directed film, even though a lot of the filmmaking in it is quietly quite spectacular. It's it's such an interesting mix, and I think to be honest, it's part of the reason why again, maybe people are have not been kind of totally turned on by the film is is this sense of it being a very quietly, it's a very quiet film, and yet it is possibly, I mean, certainly compared to the master and even there will be blood, it's it's a much more maybe bombastic isn't the right word, but it, it's a very over. It seems like it is a film you want to describe as over the top, and yet that adjective doesn't work because it no. is such a quiet film in so many ways and yet you have these amazing sequences in it which I think point out what you're saying Adam about how um, for the most part he's, Anderson is really kind of like feels like he's tamping it down and yet in the amazing sequence where they go to Ru- Rudy Blatnoid's office and the, the dentist's office and things just keep amping up and amping up and amping up and then they're all totally like on whatever it is cocaine and then they get the car and then they drive off I mean it like that sequence I think shows just what a kind of tight grip Anderson have has over the ability to to make things very extreme and yet here it's used in this like laser focused way it doesn't it doesn't feel like something like Boogie Nights and I completely agree with you Adam it's probably my least favorite of Anderson's films it doesn't feel like that in the sense of there there's just the sense of like I can do things and I'm going to hit you over the head with it to prove that I can here it's it's so um focused and so controlled that it works so quietly, and as you say, I think that this movie makes you feel like you have to lean into it. This movie feels like it has a secret to it. I, I want to go back and see it again. I, I yeah. want to return to it over and over again, and I think that's an amazing thing to achieve in a film these days when, to be honest, I feel pretty saturated by films. Like I feel like I'm surrounded by movies worth watching again. This right. one, I want to go back to it. I, I think when we're talking about uh, the, how quiet or restrained the film is sort of unexpectedly, I think another, another thing that he does is uh, he'll keep hinting at things for a very long time uh, before they ever arrive, and when they do, they're very muted. Or he'll mm. have uh, someone, tur- like, for instance, Michael Kenneth Williams turns up for a scene and seems to be pretending some stuff that's going to be a big deal. But then, as far as I recall, he only ever shows up the one time, right? Mm-hmm. Well, there, there's there's so many actors but, uh, who but, show up for one scene only. But, I but mean, specifically, who I wanted to mention was Eric Roberts, because yeah. Yeah. Uh, his character is spoken of probably three dozen times before he actually turns up. And when, when he finally does turn up, it's in one scene where Doc just very quietly sneaks up to him and they have a quiet, fairly depressing conversation, and that's the end of it. <laughs> the the movie, the, the, the I, I've been trying, not... I'm not trying because I don't think that because I think it's hard to do, but I've been but I've been trying to sort of figure out how Anderson connects to Kubrick because Kubrick is the guy who everyone's chasing and they all chased him this year. You know, I mean Fincher remade Eyes Wide Shut with Gone Girl, you know, Nolan remade 2001 with Interstellar. For some reason, Justin Simeon shot Dear White People like Barry Lyndon. Uh, <laughs> Jason Jason Reitman put the voiceover from Barry Lyndon and Men, Women, and Children. For some reason, I mean. <laughs> Kubrick, Kubrick is the guy who all of these, like, well, let's say, strong, assertive, intellectual, but macho American filmmakers have always been chasing more than Scorsese, more than Spielberg, more than Coppola. And I think that one of the qualities that Master had and that inherent vice had is that idea of duets. Like, Kubrick always made his movies about duets. They're sort of like men having conversations in rooms. A surprising amount of his cinema is comprised of that. 
despite you know the the the, the iconic images, the monolith or the the, the genre movie stuff. He, I mean, The Shining. All all Jack Nicholson does in that movie is just talk to men who materialize out of nowhere in the hotel. Where they have these intense conversations with each other, and I think that. Um, you know, in in uh, in inherent vice, the Michael, Michael Kenneth Williams you know shows up, has one scene and leaves. Benicio del Toro has like maybe two scenes and leaves. There's three of those scenes with Bigfoot Bjornsson, but it's kind of like a pop up book. It's like all these weirdly grotesque or odd or stylized characters keep showing up for Doc to have these kind of one on one confabs with for the most part, and that felt very Kubricky to me. The stylized performance, the way that environment kind of dwarfs, uh, you know, dwarfs characters at times, the build-up to certain characters, the idea, especially when he faces down Bigfoot at the end and their two personalities kind of bleed into each other, that's very much like Barry Lyndon or very much like Full Metal Jacket or very much like Eyes Wide Shut. I think that that, and again, it's such a cliche word to use, but that idea of duality, that idea that Doc is not just encountering other parts of the culture and other parts of the plot, but these characters who he kind of bounces off of and in some cases finds that he's very close to or that they're very close to him really reminds me of Kubrick, as does the general sarcasm and satirical project that Pynchon is on about. I mean, Pynchon is a comic writer. And those of you who said that the film is a comedy, I agree, even if the comedy is muted, it has a comic structure. And that's because the book has a comic structure. Uh, I don't know what you guys think about the, the, the idea of Anderson and Kubrick, but Kubrick never came up in the first half of his career. And then starting with There Will Be Blood and the comparisons to 2001, I think he's hovered over the last few films pretty clearly. Um, first of all, I just want to agree that Boogie Nights is his worst film. And when I say worst film, I still love it. I still think it's a great film, but it's my least favorite of his, like, oeuvre. Um, also, in terms of Stanley Kubrick, a while back, I think last year, I appeared on the old cast, and I actually was invited to talk about uh, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, specifically Punch Drunk Love. And I brought up the whole Stanley Kubrick reference uh, in Punch Drunk Love because I think that is, specifically the angles and lighting of that film and the way he captures the emotions through images and sound is exactly the way Stanley Kubrick would in some of his movies. And I think there's a lot, a lot of in, uh, inspirations, and he pays homage to Stanley Kubrick films within Punch Drunk Love. And I'm not just talking about the washroom sequence, which of course is very reminiscent of the washroom sequence in The Shining, but the whole entire yeah. film, like the lighting. Um, I mean, it's been a while since, since I've seen Punch Drunk Love, so I can't really like articulate very well, but go back and watch Punch Drunk Love if you want to see how he really takes influence and inspiration from Stanley Kubrick's movies. Um, and also, we talked about the movie being very quiet. And I get what you guys are saying. It is quiet, I guess, until Martin Short shows up, which, by the way, is like one of the best cameos of any movie in 2014. But it's still a very busy film. Like, there's so much going on. But the thing about the film is the reason why it doesn't seem as busy as it should is because he has such tight, medium close-ups or tight shots on his cast. But yet, it's like you said, he's a, an actor's director. And he's one of the few directors working in Hollywood today that really, I mean, that's what makes him a great director. It's that he puts his actors first. You know, he values his actors and he let, he gives his actors plenty of time to chew on their lines, uh, to do double take reactions. And I mean, there's so many people in this film. Like we, like I said earlier on, there's so many people that come in and out for like one scene for like a few minutes. And yet we remember each and every single one of these people. And I think it's because he does get these close ups of his cast because we're not, 
distracted by everything else in the frame, like the background or the set design or production design or, you know, the, the lighting or what, what have you. We actually focus on their faces, on these people. And even if they come in for one scene, we will remember these characters like we were, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Eric Roberts. So when I saw him in the movie, even though it's one sequence, I'm like, it's Eric fucking Roberts. And that's what I love about Paul Thomas Anderson. Like, not only is he great at directing his cast, but he's always experimenting and he's always changing. And even though we can pinpoint all of these references and influences that he has from, you know, Robert Altman to Stanley Kubrick to, uh, you know, Robert Downey Sr., et cetera, et cetera, it's still his own film. Like, it still feels like a P.T. Anderson movie, you know? And uh, I don't know. I just think he's like the greatest American filmmaker working today. And for anyone that complains about not being able to make heads or, or tails over what the movie is about, et cetera, et cetera, I mean, Jean-Luc Godard's, uh, what is it, Goodbye to Language? Yeah. That movie has hardly a narrative. I mean, that movie is incredible. And I also love the fact that it's 90 minutes long. But no one seems to complain about the fact that Jean-Luc Godard makes this experimental film, which really doesn't have a story, a beginning, middle, or an end. But everyone seems to care that Inherent Vice doesn't really make any sense. But I think that's the whole point. So that's what I'm not okay. entirely... And I haven't read the book, but I, I, I'm told it's very faithful to the book, despite the fact that it, 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 it can't fit everything into one movie. Well, I mean, I think the other thing, too, I mean, the guitar references are really interesting. One, I still haven't seen uh, Odio Language, and I really want to. But, um, I mean, I think there is just a different audience there. Like, there's a different set of expectations around Anderson than there is around Godard. I mean, I, I read lots of reviews of people complaining about Godard, but, but anyway. Um, but, I mean, the sorry, what was I going to say about Anderson, what you just said? Oh, I lost my train of thought. Let's talk about uh, acting well, references. Stop getting stoned, Kate. Yeah, I know. I'm, yeah, that's clearly what I'm doing over here on the other side. I'm just covering up the mic and smoking a joint. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, what I was going to say, I think, is maybe, and actually I wanted to ask Adam about this because I think, Adam, you're the only one here who's read the book. I have not read the book. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I haven't read any Pynchon, which I'm uh, showing my poor literary cred here. But anyway, um, one of the things that you pointed out, Adam, when you were talking about this sense of uh, Bigfoot and um, Doc almost kind of melding towards the end of the film, and I hadn't thought about it like that before, and I really love it. I think it really adds an even extra kind of uh, strange layer to the end of the film, a very sad layer to the end of the film. Um, what I find so interesting about that is this idea that I think maybe the film is able to get at in a way that probably has to be different than what is going on in the book. Um, in the sense of, uh, what's his name, Bigfoot in this film seems to, like the idea would be that he would fit into this slot of the man, right? He would fit into the slot of the kind of representative of the right wing of the kind of oppressive force yep. of the police of the state of all of these things um, and that seems to be where the film is kind of jokingly placing him in the beginning and it's sort of a joke that he's kind of ineffectual in this role but he's still behind him we get the sense of the LAPD and of these kind of like oppressive um, neo-Nazi forces and all these things that the LAPD is attached to and yet as the film goes on and on and on I think as the sense of kind of paranoia and, and um, fright and dread builds up in the background what becomes so interesting is the fact that the, the film can't seem to find anyone to actually represent these things. I mean, we have the Glenn Charlotte character, but even that, I mean, it, it just like, it's more just the sense of the atmosphere is what is frightening here. I mean, this idea of Manson being referenced in the background but never shown is kind of really unsettling. And um, anyway, I, the reason, I remember now why I, this, I got into this track and it was because of Ricky and I was talking about the plot and just how people are stressed that they're not making a sense of the plot. And I, again, I just think you have a much better time with this film if you don't worry about it. I mean, the plot, you can kind of summarize the sense of not being able to understand the plot in the sense of it's a film about the impossibility 
of getting a, a total view on anything. I mean, you can't have this kind of like clear separation where you can say, that's the right, that's the left, this is good, this is bad. It, it doesn't work that way in this world right. of the film. And, yeah, and so. that lack of sense seems to drive Bjornsson insane in the same sense that it drives audiences yeah. insane. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. That's totally true. Big, 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 Bigfoot is a tragic character. That the, 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 he, he's not an addict, but like Doc, even if he's straight edge, whereas Doc is stoned, he has a way that he wants to try and reckon with and control and understand and engage with the world. And increasingly, as the film goes on, it doesn't work for him. And the film is not scoring points off of him for that. It's very sad. And it's very sad that his partner, um, you know, was murdered. And that he was murdered by the same people, basically, the same big, amorphous, vast, seemingly all-powerful collective that kind of Doc is tilting against. And even though he kind of exploits Doc and uses Doc and abuses him and has him as bait and all that, I mean, one of the reasons that he's so interested in Doc and wants to keep talking to him throughout the film and go to the same place as he is and ask him what he knows is because he's trying to kind of get revenge as well. Um, and I think that, you know, by the end of the film, what's what what's sad for me about Bigfoot is he wants to kind of be what Doc is or have what Doc is more than Doc ever wants to be anything like him. Um, mm. And I think that part of what he might envy about Doc is that Doc has found a way of dulling the pain, even if it's just by being stoned all the time, even if it's by being a hippie, even if it's by having lost his girl instead of marrying his wife because Bigfoot doesn't seem to take much solace from his wife who in the you know in the in the in the movie seems to you know like totally dominate and, and abuse him a little bit an interesting kind of you know gender dynamic there and i think that Brolin's performance it's the idea of like how do you shade in a cartoon how do you give a cartoon human dimension how do you uh, play a guy like he's a cartoon so that eventually you can put a lump in the audience's throat and i think that he does that because he's a very resourceful actor i think that bigfoot is the one pop-up figure in the movie the one kind of grotesque or antagonistic character who doc runs up against who gets more than one scene who gets to sort of have a little bit of an arc, and it's an arc that's very, very similar again to um, to to Freddie and Lancaster Dodd at the end of the Master. Their last scene in Inherent Vice is exactly like Freddie and Dodd's last scene in the Master. It's these two men uh, looking at each other in this shot reverse shot from across this irreconcilable gulf. They're, they kind of hate each other. They're kind of in love with each other, and it's kind of implied that they're the same. And they love each other and they kind of hate each other and they desire each other because they're kind of the same despite their differences, despite the fact that one seems to be powerful and that one seems to be weak. And again, not to, to, to hump this note on the piano too much, but that's very Kubricky to me. That, it's, that, it's, that it's also very this like the, the master-slave dynamic thing here is interesting too in the sense of like the detective cannot – like the – well, the, I don't know if you could say the PI can't exist without the detective, but there is – here you have this sense as well of like the reason there isn't a reconcilable gulf is that the one needs the other to exist. I mean, they have yes. to be, they have to have this line of identity across which they separate each other. I mean, it, anyway, sorry, who else was going to talk? Oh, no, and, they're, they're, and, they're, and I know, I think you just said it more succinctly than I did. They do kind of need each other and they are each versions of each other because they're both investigators. And they're both ultimately at the mercy of this idea of the golden fang. And I would be remiss, considering how long we've talked about the movie, you've all kind of mentioned your own favorite moments. The great image in this movie for me, it's so resonant and suggestive and playing the idea of the movie being a comedy. It's so damn funny is the hippie 
basically handing the heroine back to a blonde mother and her little daughter in their station wagon. And, what it, what, and what's happening there is the 60s are ending and the 80s are beginning and the 70s are just kind of like the, 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 the 70s are just the conduit that that's kind of going through. Like that idea of the war on drugs, Reagan's war on drugs, while simultaneously the drug trade in America became increasingly corporatized and, and systematized. Like the hippie handing the drugs to the blonde family in the station wagon and asking them what it's like to work for the Golden Fang. I mean that's from Pynchon but that is a stellar image. That, that there is there there is an entire like sociology syllabus bound up in that one little exchange. <laughs> it's just so great, Kate. That's I, your job to write. Sorry, go ahead. I, I haven't I haven't read the book, but I kind of uh, I've been told that that's one of the major things that's lacking in the film. That the book really focuses on like the eighties and future technology and computers and the internet. Exactly. I'm not entirely sure. yeah. So and that's what I kind of do feel is lacking in the film based on what I've heard about the actual book, which makes me want to read the book. Um, but the last thing I'm going to say, because we've been running really long here in time, um, first of all, I love the cinematography by Robert Yellman, who also, of course, shot There Will Be Blood. Fantastic. Beautiful movie. I love the score by Johnny Greenwood also. Um, but I also want to just quickly say that, you know, the the film isn't really complicated to understand in terms of, like, the plot. The thing is, it's like, you know, it's no different than Chinatown in, in a sense that the story turns – on LA land and how it's used for uprooting minority communities and government, private sector conspiracies, et cetera, et cetera. And then we can think of a movie like night moves in which there's like a missing daughter's case and multiple homicides. And of course I already mentioned like the long goodbye by Robert Altman, but basically like it is possible to follow the story. The thing is it, it just doesn't give us the answers. Cause like in real life you do meet people that you will never see again. Like you can meet someone, you know, like he does in this movie one time and he'll never see that person or character again and so he never actually gets to find out who they are or solve every single mystery which is fine um so i i don't want listeners i'm pretty sure if you've listened this far into the podcast you've watched a movie but i do think it is like pretty easy to understand what's going on it just doesn't give you any answers and that's what i kind of like about it i like the fact that this is a movie that when i was done watching it i couldn't stop thinking about it and I want to watch it again, and I want to watch it again. And I like the fact that we can walk away with different interpretations and have this great discussion. And uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we've been talking for like what over an hour now, and now Almost I'm kind an of hour, yeah. yeah, now I'm kind of like thinking, like you know, is this my favorite movie of the year? <laughs> <laughs> that that was actually honestly my whole thought about doing like a panel style review of this film was having only seen it once. I need to hear other people's thoughts so that I can start to formulate my own because they're still so so nascent. But I will say that, you know, when you're talking about um, thinking about the film afterwards, the only rubric that I still have left that I trust mm -hmm. about whether or not a film is great is how much is it kicking around in my skull afterwards and for how long. Yeah. That is now the only uh, the only thing left that I trust because there's just there's so many voices and there's so many things to watch, uh, especially now with television that I that I now can only trust sort of my subconscious. <laughs> anyway, uh, I guess that's that's just about it. Unless anything, anyone has any uh, extremely pressing things they'd like to mention before we wrap things up. Uh, yes, I do because I like I, I think I'm going to appear probably on another sorted cinema podcast at some point. But uh, because this is the last sound on site episode, and I am lucky enough to be on it, I want to take two minutes and say uh, how much I think myself and the internet appreciate the work that Ricky and Simon have put into running this podcast for so long. I think people who 
listen to this podcast and enjoy it. Maybe don't understand how much time and energy and work Simon and Ricky commit to this podcast, you guys. I've only done it a little bit. And just knowing how much time out of my week it is to make sure I get to see two films and that I collect my thoughts and that I can sit down and we can organize the time to be with these guys. Ricky and Simon continually impress me with the level of enthusiasm and commitment they've brought to this podcast over the years. And they do it for free, you guys. They do it because they love movies. And I think that that is something that inspires me. And I think that they are great. And I just wanted to say that before you wrap it up. Well, thank thank you, Kate. Thank you, Kate. But you know what? I never went to film school, but having like you and Adam on the show and just discussing the film, to me, it's kind of like film school. So just listening <laughs> to Adam talk right now, I'm like, holy shit, this is amazing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and thank you, yeah, to Adam too. It's amazing. I will, I will add only uh, thank you very much for having me on. And I'm sorry that I kind of ruined and ended the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, like, cause I didn't realize that this was the last one. And now I'm like, oh, this is my fault. Like, you have this great podcast. <laughs> people listen to and you have all these like nice relationships and everyone lives loves each other now it's like oh it's it's, it's, it's over Here's this asshole my, uh, my fault uh, no, speaking but, of which but, speaking but, of which uh where, where can people find this asshole online uh you can find me at twitter at bro from another you can find me on facebook probably promoting lectures i do in toronto i'm actually doing a long lecture on the master in two weeks time and a lecture on zodiac uh this upcoming monday um and yeah i mean you can just uh, you can just find me wherever there's hopefully space to discuss movies one of the things i love about podcasts about your podcast when i've listened to it about other ones that are well run especially ones that are you know cogent and articulate and well edited is there's just so little actual space to write at length about movies or talk at length about movies things get reduced to a soundbite or they get shrunk down to a capsule and it doesn't mean I think that things should run in the other direction. You should necessarily talk endlessly for an hour about a movie like we just did. I hope it was relatively interesting <laughs> to listen to. But I but but I think that it's a I think that in terms of cinephilia and film criticism, that length and size and scope are heroic. Because most people like to shrink their opinions down now to the space of a tweet and not engage with anyone, uh, not engage with anyone else. Many critics can barely even manage like a, a, a compelling tweet, and so to be able to have like <laughs> so to be able to have like a long form discussion about something that supports it, like a two and a half hour movie like Inherent Vice, I I, I, I think it's terrific. So it's- um, you know, in a, in, a, in a less connected way to the history of the podcast than Kate, I would also thank you guys for what it is that you do oh thank you that's funny now now i'm kind of looking at myself guiltily for my pithy one word review on letterboxd of the grand budapest hotel <laughs> well, which was which was what exhausting yeah well i i would agree and if, if only we had another two hours i could talk about why that's wes anderson's worst movie but let's not uh, agree anyway, agree. Yeah. Agree anyway let's anyway. let's so not do that uh but and uh thank you so much for coming on adam i i, I really need to read uh your showgirls book because i love showgirls so much well you and you and everyone else all you need is 13 dollars, and you can read it all you want uh it's 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 for sale online and thank you all right, and uh, Kate, you're on you're on Twitter at Cinema Buffy. I am, uh, as I'm sure no one who's heard that will will have forgotten. <laughs> and uh, that's it for our inherent vice review. So uh, keep tuning in to uh, Ricky and I's countdown, if you will. And thank you all so much for joining us. Look It's too bad that fear should be running sunny Southern California as in days of old, like the Watts riots or the Hollywood blacklist. Look at the greedy little hippie.
But every once in a while, a hero like Doc Sportello shows up to help salvage his generation and guide it back to more merciful shores. Is that a swastika on that man's face? No, it isn't. That's an ancient Hindu symbol, meaning all is well. Maybe you'll just want to see the movie, Inherent Vice.